The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of James, James chapter 5. And we will uh, begin downhill of um, the series that we started a number of months ago, walking verse by verse through this book together. Uh, We're coming to a close. We've just got just a few more weeks together in this book. And James will begin today, you'll begin to see him kind of wrapping things up, particularly next week you'll see that. Um, But uh, we're going to deal with this subject of waiting today, being patient today. Anybody like that subject? Anybody struggle with that? Um, This morning I had had an illustration, an opening illustration prepared that involved a a set of, a very nice set of G.I. Joe dog tags that I bought when I was about eight years old. But uh, that, that illustration pales in comparison to the personal illustration that happened on the way to church this morning with me and my family. Um, I was uh, in a hurry, wanted to get here on time. I'm teaching the membership class, and I, I told my family this morning repeatedly, we have to leave the house no later than 9 o'clock on the dot. Well, as we always do, we're usually about 9.03, 9.04 in the, in the car getting ready to pull out of the driveway, and it's raining now. And uh, Lana is at the doorway waiting for me to turn the car around so that she can get in the car, and, and, uh, and I'm going to back the car up, and I, I put it in reverse, and I, I hit the gas to back up, and I had forgotten that my son had moved the basketball goal right there. And, uh, and wham, did I hit the basketball goal, right? And it, I was afraid that it was going to come teetering down and crash on top, but it didn't. And then all of a sudden, it, it, I had to blame somebody, right? Because that's what we do. And I, I yelled at my son, Micaiah, I told you yesterday that didn't need to be there. Which was unfair to him because I never told him to move it. Um, I just told him that it shouldn't be there. And then I proceeded from there to throw the car into drive in my driveway, which was slick with all the horsepower in that little Honda that I have, I hit the gas and squealed out and and turned it around and gave my wife a glare that said, let's go. She got in the car and she sat there quietly, didn't say anything. And and, uh, I said, Micaiah, you should have moved the goal. And my wife quietly said, that's not fair. And she's right. And I drove all the way to church with my heart up to here seething at my own foolishness. You see, life is going to be filled with those moments when we back into things. Life's going to be filled with those moments where we have to wait. You will leave here today and you will go and you will stand at Cracker Barrel and you will wonder, what did they do with our name? How come they get to go get their table first? We were here before them, right? And even though they've been so gracious to you as to put rocking chairs on the porch, that will not be enough for you, right? (laughs) But what do you do in life when it's not basketball goals and it's not Cracker Barrel? What do you do in life when it is much more serious than that? What do you do when you've gotten the news that it's cancer? What do you do when you have a spouse come home after years of marriage and say, it's over. I'm leaving you. 
What do you do when you look around at the world and the world seemingly is spinning out of control? When disease seems to be creeping ever closer to our shores, has now made it onto our shores, and Ebola seems to be a very real threat to us now. What do you do when you look around and you see a Supreme Court that says, we just won't deal with that and in order to get across our agenda and attack the family so that marriage becomes weaker and weaker? What do you do when you look across the way, around the globe, and you see uh, very evil men with a very evil agenda beheading Christians because they take the name of Christ? What do you do when we live here in our own nation that was founded very much on godly gospel principles, and you look around and it seems that the liberal agenda proclaims tolerance for everyone and everything except Christianity. What do you do when the waiting is not a basketball goal or a cracker barrel, but it is a very, very real life threat? It does not seem to be getting any better or going away. James here says in this, these verses for us to be patient. And that doesn't seem very soothing. In fact, it hits us and we want to say, that's, that's good, pastor, but please move on. Tell me something that I can do. Well, James tells us very, very clearly in a number of verses here, be patient. Let's look at these verses together. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Follow along with me as we read. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I want to walk you through today what James tells us to do, and I want to give you some, some hooks to hang this on. Because sometimes it seems that waiting is the hardest thing in the world to do. He tells us here in verse 7 to wait for the harvest. Sometimes it feels like the harvest is never going to come. When James here opens this up and he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. The therefore is there for us to look back at the the verses that came before. In verses 1 through 6, James has just condemned the, the rich landowners who were abusing those that were in poverty, those that were dependent on a daily paycheck in order to eat. But now James has moved on from from talking about unbelievers and condemning this behavior to now he's not talking about unbelievers, but now he's talking to believers who have to endure these sorts of things. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The temptation must have been for these in that day, those who were poor workers, being taken advantage of by these wealthy lenders, the, the, the temptation must have been for them to retaliate. But James says to them, don't fight back. Just wait. Be patient because the Lord is coming. 
James here says, wait for the harvest. And then he gives them this picture, this illustration. The illustration is the farmer. Now, the farmer is one of uh, at least three different metaphors given in the Bible for the Christian, for Christian living. Um, the farmer is one. The athlete is another. The soldier is another. The, the farmer is far less interesting than either of the other two. I was listening to a sermon by Al Mohler, and he helped me understand what James is trying to say here about the farmer. You see, the athlete runs a race, and we like that. The athlete gets to run a race. The athlete gets to train and gets to fight a fight. He gets to have a competition. He trains. He competes. He finishes. We like this metaphor for the Christian life because we fancy ourselves athletes, even though most of us never were. We like the metaphor of the soldier. The soldier also gets to train. The soldier follows orders, but even so, there's something romantic about the, 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 the authority that is displayed there in the military. And we are a soldier under someone, and he obeys orders. He fights battles. He has a sense of mission, and we like this because every one of us needs to have a mission. We need to have something to fight for. But the farmer is far less interesting. He waits. His work is patience. Now, he works while he's waiting. He does what he can, does what he's called to do. He plows the ground. He plants the seeds. He keeps the weeds out of the field. But a lot of his work is waiting. He, he can go out into his field after he's planted the rows, and he can yell at the seeds like a drill sergeant, Grow! but they will not respond. He can dress up in athletic attire. He can put on all the Nike and all the Under Armour he wants to, and he can run up and down the rows, but the seeds will never be impressed. What he has to do is he has to wait. He has to wait, and he has to trust God to do the work. He has to wait for the plant to spring forth from the ground. He cultivates, he plants, he fertilizes, but he has to go to sleep every night and wait. And we don't like this illustration. We don't like this metaphor as much because I would argue to you today or, or put before you today that one of the major problems plaguing Christians in a modern context is we want everything now. We, we, want, we want satisfaction and sanctification and vindication. We want all these things now. We want victory over all the things that hinder or afflict us. We want them now. We, we want the blind to receive sight now. We want the lame to leap for joy now. The righteous to be vindicated now. But the Bible tells us that those things will happen, but they will not happen until the day of the Lord. See, a lot of what happens in the church that causes issues is because we look at one another and we are, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we look at one another and expect things to be true of others that we don't expect of ourselves. We want these things now. I, I couldn't help but notice as I studied for this and read through the text a, a number of times how certain parts of this seem to line up with the others. I like how the coming of the Lord and the precious fruit of the earth in verse 7 play equivalent parts here. As the farmer waits for the fruit of the earth, so the Christian waits for the coming of the Lord. And the fruit of the earth is called this precious fruit of the earth. And I would argue to you this morning, Christian, that when Christ comes, it will be a joyous day. It will be precious fruit that we have waited for for so long. 
But we must wait until that day comes. Just as a joyous day when the farmer brings the harvest, that will be a day. But we will never have everything that we want in this life when we want it because we must wait. James here seems to be saying to us that when, you're, when you are enduring this persecution and this oppression and being taken advantage of, and let me just extrapolate it to today, when you're having to deal with things like news of cancer and all the things that I illustrated and, and put out there for you at the beginning, when you're having to deal with that now, sometimes in the middle of it you can say, I've got to have relief now. But the reality is some things in life God is is not meaning for you to have relief of now. There will come a day when you will get relief, believer, but it will not be until the coming of the Lord. So wait. Wait for the harvest. The harvest is the coming of the Lord, and in that day, the harvest will be precious. The harvest will be glorious in that day, but now we must wait. Isn't that sort of the hardest thing to do? I mean, it's passive. I think that's why it's so hard. It's because waiting requires no action. Be patient and wait. Okay, tell me what to do. Tell me how to do that. When I counsel with people, that's, that's a lot of the response I get. You're going to have to wait on the Lord. Well, then what do I do in the meantime? Well, I'm going to give you some things to do in the meantime, but waiting is never going to be easy, but waiting is essential because waiting causes us to turn into God. So wait for the harvest. Let me give you some things. First, endure the entire season. Endure the entire season. This is not the main point of the passage, but I want to give it to you because I think it's it's needed for us to see here. In the last part of verse 7, he says, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, the growing season in Palestine was not like ours. The growing season was they would put the seeds in the ground in in late October or early November and they would grow over what would be our winter and they would harvest in April, right around April. The the early rains uh, were generally right after the planting, sometime in October or early November. The late rains were, were right around April, just before the harvest. And those rains, even though uh, every other month of the, of the year, um, the ESV study note says, even though three-fourths of Palestine's rain fell from December to, to February, those two rains, the early and the late, were far more significant for the crop. And the farmers knew it. But they also knew that, that they needed the early and the late rain, but they also needed all the rain in between. And one thing I've noticed in pasturing in what is decreasingly a farming community. I mean, we're, at one time, this was probably lots of, lots of peach orchards and cotton at times and, and various things were here. But the older generation here, one thing I've noticed is the older generation talks about rain. The younger people in the room in our, in our faith family don't talk about rain. But the older generation talks about rain. They ask for us to pray for rain. They measure the rain. This is part of the conversation. When you're standing around with with the older generation, uh, lots of them, when when you don't know what else to say, you say, well, we got some good rain the other day, right? This was 
this is what it, this comes directly out of the fact that this was a farming community. And just as the farmers here and just as the farmers there knew how important the entire season was, I want to tell you today, church, that your life is going to be an entire season. And God has promised to bring you all the way home. He's promised to finish what he has started, but you've got to, in the middle of it, endure the entire season. The early rains, the late rains, and every rain in between. The very notion of of early and late rains, think about that. The very fact that they could refer to this as something that existed regularly on the calendar year. It wasn't a certain day, but they could count on these early and late rains. Doesn't it speak of the faithfulness of God? And doesn't it also speak that whatever season you are going through, whatever is going on in your life, whether it is raining right now, whether it is storming right now, or whether it is dry and seemingly barren right now, if you are His child, He has promised to be faithful to see you all the way home. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? In the day of Jesus Christ. You see, church, we've got to endure every season because every season will, will bring things that are necessary for our sanctification, for us to become like Christ, for him to finish what he has started. I love the way this is said in Psalm 57. Psalm 57, verses 1 and 2 says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. Church, hear me on this. If David can pray that on the run from Saul, you and I should have the same attitude today, whatever comes our way. That he may not take us, and this sounds so cliche, but he may not take us out of the storm, but it will be his wings that we will be under in the midst of the storm. He will complete and fulfill his purpose. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 24 say, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is Faithful, he will surely do it. Church, you and I cannot finish the work that is God's. It is God's work, and only he can finish that. You and I will endure sunny days and cold days and rainy days and stormy days and all sorts of other days in between. But every single one of those days has been deemed necessary for you to be made like Christ so that you can be ushered into his presence at the end. He will be faithful to do it. Rest assured, none of the storms that come your way are meant to destroy you. The entire season is necessary to bring you all the way home. So endure the entire season. I hope that encourages you because some of you right now are in the middle of things that I would not wish on anybody. And maybe I don't even know that you're going through that, but you know you're going through it. And it feels like a dark night of the soul. Take heart that whatever season you are in, whatever night you are in at this point, God knows exactly where you are and God knows exactly what he's doing and he will be faithful to make you complete and whole. One of these days, he's going to come again.
Secondly, this morning, dealing with waiting is not only endure the entire season, but James here says in verse 8, establish your hearts. He says, you also be patient, establish your hearts. Um, ours is a culture and, uh, that lets circumstances or feelings rule our hearts, don't we? Just like this morning, backing into a basketball goal and all of a sudden, all the, all the prayer and all the study that I had worked up to all week long was stolen from me in an instant where I backed into a basketball goal, right? Don't we live in this culture where feelings are more important, where circumstances dictate the day? Babies are aborted because the mom isn't ready. Affairs happen because needs are not being met by the spouse at home. We live in a day, ours is a culture that lets circumstances and feelings rule the day, rule our hearts. But here, when James says, establish, establish means you decide, you make a choice. In the midst of whatever life throws at you, decide to be faithful to Christ. To be hopeful in Christ. To be confident in the fact that He will do what He has said He's going to do. That's a choice. If you let your feelings dictate your, your heart, where will that leave you? Many of you got up this morning and you looked outside and you saw that it was raining and dreary and you thought, oh, this bed feels so good. Right? These covers. What is the thread count of these sheets anyway? They just feel so good, right? Because you have all these thoughts and you begin to justify, I could just miss this one time. But some of you had to make a decision today to say, no, God's worthy of my worship. And I want to go and I want to be with his people because Hebrews chapter 10 tells me not to forsake the assembling of myself with God's people. We cannot be a people that, that are ruled, our hearts are ruled by our feelings or our circumstances. And the only way that makes sense is in light of the gospel. That's what James says here. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. If I simply said to you, establish your hearts, make a choice to not let your feelings rule you, you'd say, why? Why should I? But in light of the fact that the coming of the Lord is at hand, that it could be at any moment should cause us to willfully choose, to decide, to establish our hearts, to be faithful, to, to believe, to hope in Him. The early church believed that Christ could return at any moment, and it made a difference in the way they lived. You read Acts 2 and, and, and forward from there, and you, you, you read how all of a sudden their possessions became trivial and meaningless to them. They began to sell what they had because they saw others in the community that had needs, and so they began to give to one another as anybody had needs. And just because it's 2,000 years later and Jesus hasn't yet returned doesn't make that any less true. It doesn't change the way that we should live as well. I don't know what you're going through. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what is plaguing you at this moment. But I would encourage you to establish your heart. To choose to believe. To choose to trust. To choose to be confident that Christ is up to something and it is good. Third is this, look forward to future justice. He says there in the last part of verse 8, I just read it for you, I'll read it again. He says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Some of you are suffering injustice right now, and you are like those that he 
talked about in verses 1 through 6. And there are those that are being taken advantage of, being oppressed in some ways. And maybe not so much in our culture, but maybe so. I don't know your situation. But listen to a, a very helpful passage in Psalms. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 10, says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now, one of the things that I I enjoy about summer is I enjoy cutting the grass. But one of the things I enjoy about the fall and the winter is I love to see the grass fade. Right? Because by the time I get to the end of the season, I'm tired and I'm ready to have a break from it. And, and here, that's the, that's the image that's here. He says, these evildoers, don't pay them one bit of attention because soon they're going to be just like that grass and they're going to fade away. But not fade for a season to return again. They will fade forever. He says, trust in the Lord, the psalmist does, and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Now, I'm not telling you to sadistically look forward to the judgment of the unrighteous. But there is a truth in the fact that we ought to be jealous for the holiness of God. And we ought to look forward to a day when evildoers are no more. You may have a particularly evil doer in mind. You may not. But should we not look forward to a day when there are no members of ISIS? There is no organization known as ISIS. Should we not look forward to that day? Oh, church, in the middle of a fallen world where sin still permeates, And where tragedy still happens, look forward to this future, future judgment. There will come a day when all of it will be put away. And this should cause us great joy. No more birth defects. No more more death. No more cancer. No more weeping. It will all be put away. I heard, I was, we had the TV on on Sunday mornings. I was listening to a particular preacher preach, and he was talking about heaven. And sometimes he's a little hokey, and this is a little hokey, but he talked about how we value gold here and up in heaven. That's what they fill potholes with. Let me tell you something. There are no potholes in heaven. It will all be put away. Can you even imagine a world, a world that is so seemingly saturated, dripping with evil, will be wrung out and completely dry with the holiness of our God. Fourth is this, pay close attention to present holiness. Pay close attention to present holiness. Verse 9, this is where I'll get back to what I started a minute ago. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
The word grumble there is, is, uh, is, is very important. Isn't it true that when you and I are hurting, we often lash out at those that we love the most? Haven't you, haven't you in moments of hurt and frustration hurt the ones who are the closest to you? And then you get away from the situation and you say, why? Why did I do that? I looked at my wife the other day and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm a jerk. Those were my words to her. And she has just finished surgery and I'm being a jerk to her. Because I had something in my life that was frustrating and hurting me and so she's closest to me and I lash out at her. We lash out against one another. He says, don't do it. Don't grumble against one another. The word here is much more than me being a jerk. It's much more than us complaining. The word means, it, it, it conveys to us this soulful dissatisfaction. Now, we're dissatisfied. We don't admit it often, but we're dissatisfied with the condition of our own souls, where we are. We, thought we think we ought to be further along. But more times than not, we grumble against other people because we think they should be further along. We think they should be perfect in sanctification. We grumble against one another when we see something in them that we don't like, some behavior or some attitude. We want to hold them to a standard that we really don't hold ourselves to. Well, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have talked to me that way. They shouldn't have that attitude. When we often are the ones talking the same way and with the same attitude ourselves, we're dissatisfied with the sanctification of their soul. We think that, 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 that they should be much, much further along. In fact, we hold others to a much higher standard than we hold ourselves to. Al Mohler says it this way. He said in the sermon I was listening to, it's very easy to grumble against one another in the church because we expect present, instantaneous, and complete sanctification of everyone else. We don't really expect that of ourselves, though. See, the problem is exactly what I was talking about earlier when we want these things now. The problem is not that we don't pay close enough attention to present holiness the problem is that we're not looking for it in ourselves. We want everyone else to be holy, but we don't want ourselves to be holy. And when James here says, don't grumble against one another, he attaches to it so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You ever been guilty of uh, having a conversation about someone, you're grumbling against them, and all of a sudden everyone else in the room sort of gets quiet and has this look on their face, and you say... She's right behind me, isn't she? It's the picture here. The picture is that Christian believer, you and I ought to live our lives in such a way we ought to guard our tongues. One of the major points of the book of the letter of James, we ought to do so knowing that it's not just everyone else who needs to be sanctified, but God, please sanctify me. Knowing that one day the judge will come, the Lord will come, and our lives will be examined. In that day, if you are a believer trusting in Christ, you will not face the condemnation of God. You will not be cast out. There will be no, no wrath that comes your way. But you will endure examination, and your life will undergo lots of loss. And hopefully reward. James here says, pay close attention to present holiness. 
Church, I would encourage you, in the middle of the suffering, whatever you're going through, whatever you're enduring, in the seasons of your life, the entire season, pay close attention to how you act and live and think and work and play and behave. The judge is standing at the door. And then, I don't know what number we're on, but, but I've got two more very quickly. I'll, I'll say this. In the middle of waiting, when, he, when we have to wait, he says, remember those patient examples from the past. James said, verses 10 and 11, think about those prophets. As an example of patience, brothers, think about those prophets. Take them that spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider them blessed, those who remain steadfast. Then he gives the example of Job. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. I want to just remind you of why he's reminding them of these prophets. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Amos kept preaching even though the people they were preaching to ignored the message. And oftentimes the leaders of Israel became hostile in reaction to it. Kept preaching. Most of what they were coming and saying was, you are sinning, repent. Now, who likes to be told that? Who likes to be told that you're wrong? But these kept preaching because they believed their obedience to God was more important than being liked by fellow men. They kept preaching. Jeremiah suffered at the hands of pagan kings. He suffered at the hands of his own people. He was known as the the weeping prophet. Nevertheless, he remained faithful to the message that God had given him. Isaiah, for preaching the gospel, we have on record that he was martyred for for preaching the message God had given him. Not the gospel itself, but a a future gospel pointing to it. You you can't help but read Isaiah and read all about the, the Messiah that would one day come. And for doing so, the Bible says that he was killed by being sawed in two. Job, when he says, remember, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, Job seems like maybe he's not the best example of this. I mean, if you read through the book of Job, he, he cursed the day he was born. He insisted that he was innocent. He argued with his friends. He complained that he was being treated unfairly. He all but demanded that God explain himself, explain why he was being treated this way. Yet through it all, he persevered. Even though he lost everything, he lost his children in this horrific storm. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his health. His wife told him to curse God and die. Yet through all of it, even though he was not perfect in so many instances, through it all, he persevered and he never abandoned God. Naked I came into this world. Naked I'll leave. It's interesting here, James says, these examples, these that were martyred, these that had everything stripped and taken away from them. Then he says, we consider those blessed. Would our world look at those lives and call those lives blessed? Would those that preached and were faithful, even though they endured such things, would they draw a crowd? Would they fill arenas? Would they sell books? Would they have radio stations on Satellite radio. Absolutely not. Our world would not call them blessed. Our world would look at them and say, they're cursed of God. There must be something wrong with them. 
They're doing something wrong because our world looks at those who are filling arenas by not preaching the gospel and says, they must be doing something right. But James here says, those who are faithful in the midst of horrible suffering were blessed. To which I say to you, absolutely. Listen to the words of Paul. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is, the church. Church, I would tell you that in this world, suffering will come your way. But be faithful. As you are faithful to God in the middle of whatever comes your way, the world is faithful to look at your life and say, there's something real about their God. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. It's not good works just in the middle of sunny days. Let them see your good works in the middle of suffering and storms. And they're, they're faced with this reality of they're not fake. That's not a plastic smile. Douglas Moo in his commentary on James says, Doing God's will will often lead to suffering. What is needed is a willingness to bear up under the suffering, maintaining spiritual integrity, and waiting patiently for the Lord Himself to intervene to transform the situation. Church, this is not a very encouraging sermon. Now, you may walk out of here and say it was, but I'm basically telling you today that there's going to be suffering that's going to come your way as you live this life, and sometimes God's going to leave you in it. Bear up under it and trust Him. That's a hard sermon. But that's what we're called to do. Remember those patient examples from the past. And then last is this, and I'm through. This is very quick. Draw strength in the fact that God never changes. In the last part of verse 11, you've seen, if you look at the life of Job and, and, and you look at that life and you see all that was taken from him, you get to the end of the story and you see that God was faithful. God never changed And that's what James means here when he says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I don't know what you're going through, but here, let me me tell you something that, that ought to encourage you. God doesn't change because God has no need to change. If God could change for the better, then wouldn't it mean that there is something deficient in him to begin with? And if he can change for the better one time, then how do we ever know that he is perfect in in all his ways? See, God can't change for the better because God's already perfect. You can't get better than perfect. God doesn't change. God can't change for the worse. God will not change for the worse. How could he change for the worse? Because the Bible tells us God is good. He's the very definition of good. He cannot go against his character. He will not change for the worse. He's not a God that you have to worry that one day will become fed up with your life and say, enough. I've given them chance after chance after chance. I am embarrassed that I ever gave them the gospel. They're bringing shame to my name. And he's casting you off. You're never going to have to worry about that with God. He's not sorry that he saved you. You hear me? 
He will never be sorry that he saved you. Because you, you being the wretch that you are, me being the wretch that I am, that yells at my son in the driveway when I back into a basketball goal, me being the wretch that I am, when he takes me all the way home, he's going to be glorified. It's never going to be me. He's never going to, I'm not getting to heaven and, and him going, Scott, it was close there for a while, but you pulled it out in the end. Because if you all are standing around, you're going to go, ha, no. The reality is, in heaven, when I'm there and when you're there, being the wretch that we are, we will stand there and all of heaven and all of creation for all of eternity will say, blessed be the name of our God. Whatever comes your way, Christian, be patient. Endure. God's faithful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us. We thank you that you still love us. We thank you that there will never come a time when you will not love us. That that God, just because our circumstances say something's wrong, that does not mean that you have forsaken us because you never will. God, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for the believers in this room today that are enduring right now very difficult things. God, I pray for them. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the strength they need to bear up under it. Help them to trust in you. Help them to cry out like David did and come up under your wings to know that you will finish what you've started that the purposes that you have for us to make us like Christ, that you will do that. Lord, bear with them. God, see them through. Give them brothers and sisters from this faith family that will come alongside and love them well. Lord, for the unbelievers that are here in this place today, God, draw them to yourself. Lord, help them to know that the things that come their way in this life are right now graces in their own right. They are graces given by you that are meant to not turn them away from you, but that are meant to turn them to you. Lord, today I pray, God, that you would call them to yourself. Lord, that the gospel would ring so beautiful in their ears. Make them alive today, God. Help them to turn from sin and trust you as Savior. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe maybe there is something that you're going through and you just need some prayer. Uh, I'd be glad to pray with you. I'm going to be seated down here on the front. There are There are also other believers from this faith family that will be out in a prayer room just through that door. They'd love to just sit down with you or stand with you or kneel with you and pray. They'd love to hear maybe what's going on or maybe not even hear anything that's going on. Just pray for you without knowing all the details. Maybe you're here today and you've been been trying to do this alone. You want to trust God, but you're just about at the end of your rope. 
I would encourage you to find some other brothers and sisters to invite them in. Let them walk with you. Let them them be like those friends that didn't stop when the room was too crowded, but they climbed up on the roof and tunneled in to Jesus. Let them be those friends that keep you trusting. Whatever it is that you're going through, God will be faithful. Trust Him. Whatever it is you need to do today, do it. Respond to Him. Let's respond to His grace. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.